Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our weekly bonus episode just for patrons, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So for today's episode, we're going to be checking in on some of the latest developments in the ongoing COVID narrative. Despite case numbers rebounding again, the idea of reintroducing protections is absolutely not on the table. For example, New York State set a new record for itself with over 7,000 cases reported on April 18th, which is higher than the highest peak of any day during the entire Delta surge. And the United States mask mandate on transportation ended this week after an absolutely threadbare and logically ridiculous ruling from a judge in Tampa, Florida. And the crux of the debate is really revolving around masking. And it has been since the CDC changed its community transmission level system in late February, changing a bunch of counties to low risk and not recommending masking until hospitals start to fill up. And just like clockwork, as masks come off and cases started to go up, and now with the travel season about to be in full swing, unmasked American travelers will be bringing cases all over the place in the coming weeks. Yeah, I recently went back to the uh, the, the Biden administration's uh, national COVID preparedness plan, which was released uh, with much fanfare by Jeff Zients in one of his last moves for the administration <laughs> earlier this year. And the way that they talk about masking in that document is really chef's kiss consultant uh, language because they're saying, look, goal one of the administration is to uh, protect against the spread of the virus and masks might be an important part of that. But in the words of this document, quote, masks have been a critical tool to protect ourselves, but they have a time and place. And so essentially they leave open this idea that like, yes, actually, there will be circumstances in which we need to uh, remain uh, masked and to, to, to have mask mandates in place. But they also sort of like leave this gigantic uh, hole and saying like, well, you know, under certain conditions, like what are those conditions? Well, you know, we'll see. I mean, the fact that they're in the situation with uh, mask mandates for travel is is not necessarily surprising because they've in a way sort of politically undercut themselves in their own argument for it. Well, they're not even making an affirmative argument for yeah. it at all. That's the thing. That's I mean, that's yeah. like we can look no further, I think, to understand where the Biden administration is on not even just on masking, but on like caring about or considering the pandemic to be an ongoing thing really at all, simply by looking at the way that they've responded to this um, judge's ruling out of Florida, right, to how they seem to privilege or prioritize whether they're even going to try and do anything about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, as obviously this has been, you know, widely reported, even like last night, basically, as we were sort of, you know, preparing to talk about this, 
this you know announcement came out from the justice department saying essentially like yeah we're going to like the the biden justice department will appeal this decision and try and reinstate the transportation mask mandate you know provided that the cdc thinks it's you know a big deal like if the cdc says so then we'll do it and this caused tons of confusion actually it was like it was really unclear for a long time whether like had the cdc in fact already made a recommendation had had anything happened and and you know while maybe by the time that this episode comes out there will have been some press hit or something that's like the the white house or the cdc itself saying like no we do in fact intend to appeal this ruling right um we do have like just this morning from politico um reports from inside the white house saying basically uh i'll just quote here quote this puts a testy decision with public health officials while consensus grows among white house and public health officials that an appeal would be impractical (laughs) unquote Meaning basically because the like the the big controversy, I guess, is that basically the CDC was about to probably do away with this anyway. The last time that they renewed it, they renewed it for a shorter period of time than they had in other renewals right. previously. Um, they were clearly, you know, they've, they've been just sort of, I think, slowly buying their time until they could like themselves lift this because I don't right. think that they consider this an important measure um themselves and so now it's kind of like well a judge has made this decision for them and they don't want to you know to those who i guess i would assume in their words still care about covid or whatever like to uh to to those people um they don't want to look like they're totally not doing anything but on the other hand it's like well this has just been done for them no i mean and i think that this is you know, if you I think Biden was talking to uh, reporters recently and they, they asked him, uh, you know, should Americans wear masks? And he said, well, that's up to them, mm. um, uh, which is, you know, just a, a great sort of statement of administration policy. <laughs> but I, but I think that like the waffling uh, and, and it's important to like talk about how ridiculous this case is. This is this is a case that was um, brought uh, by an organization called the uh, Health Freedom Defense Fund, mm-hmm. uh, pu- cool. you know, public interest legal organization, public interest in, in heavy quotations there um, <laughs> in a federal district court in uh, Tampa. The judge, you know, which public, <laughs> right? The judge who made the ruling in the case is like a 35 year old Trump appointee who at some point uh, at a uh, like Federalist Society dinner equipped that like paper money might not be constitutional. The ruling is <laughs> yeah, cool. it's just amazing. Uh, the ruling awesome. is is one of the most uh, preposterous and absurd things that I've like ever read from yeah. a bench. And, and it just like the sense that like it absolutely vacates any authority of the CDC uh, to do anything <laughs> almost anything because of the interpretation of the word sanitize in the law and the to me the the waffling on on the messaging it's like this is what you get when you don't uh when your like main focus of your administration is is like the messaging people and the uh the consultants it's like well yeah. okay if you don't challenge this ruling not only does it mean that this uh pub- current public health intervention gets struck down um, and you just let that go. It also means that any number of other things that the CDC normally uh, takes action on or like it is normally part of their like ambit as an organization would also be potentially up for like legal destruction. And, and so it's like, yeah, OK, 
you're not going to like you read the text of this decision like any hesitance uh about this just betrays so little understanding of like what the meaning of a ruling like this is not just for the the like the instant case but like the administrative state which you nominally like as part of the cdc or the doj like are supposed to I don't know, protect. It's really absurd. Yeah, no, it's even if you know nothing about this judge and like all the other sort of weird things like about, you know, her not having much experience or whatever. And like the sort of Federalist Society connections and like whatever, like if you look at this right and you read this, it's an absolutely absurd argument. This is a quote from the decision Quote, wearing a mask cleans nothing. At most, it traps virus droplets, but it neither sanitizes the person wearing the mask nor sanitizes the conveyance. Anyone who refuses to comply with the condition of mask wearing is, in a sense, detained or partially quarantined by exclusion. So this is the kind of like help my mouth is being detained. Yeah, you know, so it's like it's like, yeah, you could say like this is a this is a reasonable like there's one way to frame this is a very reasonable challenge. And that's sort of like what the Biden administration is going with. Right. They're saying this is like a serious challenge to the authority of the CDC. And we are going to approach it with caution. And if the CDC wants us to intervene, we will intervene. But what's actually happening is that a total random crank Right. A random crank is doing some ridiculous bullshit on like with her unelected judicial bench and they are declining to intervene in something that is so obviously ridiculous because they literally do not give a shit. And they probably actually prefer the removal of mask mandates in transportation anyways. I mean, this is something that was likely coming. There's no urgency from them behind this. It's, you know, there is absolutely zero good faith here from the Biden administration. You can't even like stretch it to say like, you know, oh, well, maybe they're, you know, they're just trying to be careful because the the argument is absolutely fucking ridiculous. And I think this is really notably very consistent, again, with basically everything uh, top to bottom that the Biden administration is doing on masking at this point. We've talked uh, at length previously about um, CDC community levels and everything, the, the change to the CDC uh, guidelines that basically made it so that, you know, they colored in the map green, essentially. They mostly discounted the impact of actual cases and spread of COVID on whether uh, masking became a recommendation. And as we've you know talked about subsequently, when you then pair that with like a reduction in testing, you have mm-hmm. a huge recipe for disaster. But uh, for, you know, for example, this kind of dithering that they're doing on the transportation thing, I think is, is totally consistent with basically how in, in doing, for example, in setting up a CDC community level uh, metric where you basically undo even the, uh, agency recommendation that like certain communities mask or mm-hmm. or whatever you end up in a situation like the one in Philadelphia right now which is like the first major US city that uh has attempted to or has now actually uh, put back in place um a, a sort of it, it has a lot of holes in it but it's a mask mandate uh for indoor spaces and businesses and things like that there are caveats uh within it that make it not totally effective but like that is now being challenged in court. Obviously, this is at a very different level of court. This is, you know, within Pennsylvania state court at the moment. But um, the challenge that's being brought against this, because obviously, you know, mass mandates have been challenged every time. Every time any mass mandate in any setting is put, there's like been a 
court challenge against it. The current challenge against the city of Philadelphia's mask mandate, though, is literally saying, hey, look, the CDC itself doesn't recommend uh, masking in the at the level at which it, it quantifies cases now under its new metric in like Philadelphia County, for example. Therefore, the city itself can't take measures on behalf like on behalf of its citizens to put uh, to put a mask mandate back in place because it goes above and beyond like the CDC's recommendations. <laughs> so as much as, for instance, you know, like whether it's Jen Psaki saying like, oh, you know, it, it's uh, obviously we're against this, but, you know, we're going to ask the CDC and then maybe we'll appeal like this decision on transportation masking or whether it's Ashish Jaw saying uh, as he has a couple times on TV now, like, you know, that we, we support you know, generally the the idea of cities or counties or states being able to reimpose uh, mask mandates if they think it's necessary for public health, that that's just totally empty language when oh, actively they're empty. just undermining they're, they're, you know, using their own agencies to undermine right. the ability to even do that or the the signaling to even suggest that it would be time to do that again. Right. And I think that what's going on in Pennsylvania is a really good example of why, um, you know, the kind of lackadaisical attitude that they have about enforcing, you know, protections uh, combined with these recent system changes and the sort of comments from people like, you know, Rochelle Walensky for a long time as she's been selling this uh, CDC shift from community transmission levels to community levels that painted like a red map of the United States green overnight. Like she's been saying, oh, well, you know, it's like this is just sort of our federal recommendations and like local municipalities, they can do whatever they want and it's going to be totally fine. But as you can see, like it is uh, also a legal precedent that can be used against those municipalities to try and undermine those efforts that they're totally welcome to do if they feel that they need to protect themselves. Right. And so in their inaction, right, in this instance, but also as unfortunately, I think we're going to see in the instance of the the sort of transportation decision, um, if there isn't a lot of pressure on them to do something else, I think we're going to see the sort of same deference to, oh, well, if the CDC finds it necessary, and I'm sure we'll see Rochelle Walensky saying, oh, well, if people want to mask, they can so choose to do so, and that should be fine, right? But it also means that there is a precedent there that this is a valid way to override the authority of the CDC. And if the Justice Department doesn't categorically challenge it, then it remains there on the record yeah. as a precedent to undermine future things that the <laughs> yeah, CDC it, may need to do. And it's stupid and ridiculous. It's, and it's, why wouldn't you challenge it? Well, uh, this is the thing is like the they have read the I think the administration has like read the, the these political tea leaves in this sort of bizarre way where it's just like oh well pe people don't like masking i guess well i guess that means that what we should do is is do this sort of weird policy jujitsu where we like say okay we're sort of gonna you know allow this maybe in certain cases but but basically it's, it's sort of up to municipalities and and which en ends up becoming self-ratcheting right like in, in milwaukee county uh yesterday uh initially the uh, county bus system ended its mass mandate, then it reinstated it. And, you know, the, the, the message that's going to come out is, as these like future municipal fights happen, that they're, these, uh, you know, transit agencies are going to get sued. Uh, the authority is going to get knocked back because it, it's not exactly clear what CDC recommendations are. Um, and like the long game of this for, I think, the right certainly is to dismantle the 
authority that it took, you know, 100, 100 years to build uh, for public health agencies, like to, to be able to do anything. The, the whole mm-hmm. long game for there is like dismantling uh, the administrative state. The administration is is sort of playing this as if it's like a, you know, six month kind of uh, political game where like they had better like, you know, uh, get away as far as away as they can from like masking where it's like it's not really clear like that's the pivotal thing for people. Um, right. uh, but they, but they're just like it's an incredibly, I think, sh- politically short sighted. Um, Absolutely. Uh, politically short-sighted and and ultimately injurious to public health, you know, and, and and a violation of exactly what the responsibility of these agencies is supposed to be. Right. And I think to really drive that point home, the decision to or not even decision, the sort of dithering that they're doing, mm. the the attitude of like, I mean, you know, if the CDC says we should do it, then I mean, I guess we'll, you know, I, I guess we'll like decide to appeal it or whatever. Um, <sighs> get off my back. Geez. Uh, kind of attitude is. Gosh, why do you have to be such a scold making me do my job? I, I think the administration's attitude towards this is particularly obscene when you look at it in context with one of the other things that they're doing right now in terms of uh, a very different uh, pandemic era, quote unquote, mitigation strategy, which is that it broke last night via Axios that the administration, that the Biden administration, well, I'll just quote here, quote, Biden's inner circle has been discussing delaying the repeal of Title 42 border restrictions, which are now otherwise set to end May 23rd. And the and we haven't talked about title 42 on the on the show very much though i though i hope we get a chance to um but just in in brief i mean this is the like trump era this was basically stephen miller's brainchild mm-hmm. of like this is finally like covid is finally the excuse to crack down on the border basically <laughs> policy and the reasoning that the biden administration is is giving is they're like well if we undo title 42 and thus you know quote unquote open up the borders so close to the midterms that'll be politically disastrous Mm -hmm. uh, to them as though again as though this like this whole xenophobic policy is just entirely based on the false premise that essentially like covid and illness and pestilence or whatever come from without like right. that they that this fucking plague is migrating into the United States as though we can't do a perfectly good fucking job of producing it ourselves and spreading yeah. it around, which the administration is itself doing. So Personally, the whole yeah. I mean, again, literally obscene. It's obscene. like, yeah. Hey, all cause deaths are right about where they were last year at this time. So great job, gang. Great. Heck of a job. Great job, team. Mm, Excellent. Well. And the thing that's so frustrating, right, is that I feel like there's just this when you bring these, I think, very valid, valid criticisms up. Right. The kind of response that you see from the administration right now is like we have the tools. We have the tools. That's the thing that for me right now is like, I don't know, nails on a chalkboard, whatever it is that's that thing that really makes you just physically and psychically like just repulsed (laughs) immediately. Right now, for me, that is the phrase, we have the tools. Just because it's the excuse for everything, right? 
oh, well, you know, it's fine that we're doing a shitty job defending the CDC's, you know, authority because we have the tools. There's Paxlovin, there's Avushald. What about all of the things that we sent to CVS that you can't find? Or people literally point to like uh, people have that uh, more people have natural immunity now, which is an absurd thing to say when we know that reinfection is pretty common to the point that you know kind of like if you get infected like two or three months down the line you might just have COVID again Mm -hmm. like this is I think this we have the tools discussion is a really important one because like we can talk about how frustrating the ending of all these uh any really mitigations any meaningful mitigations masking even on in public transit or whatever how frustrating these things are but then I guess the question becomes, yeah, exactly what you're what you're bringing up. Like, what even is the fucking justification? And it's magical thinking. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's. Well, I mean, I think this is the the reason that these uh, you know reports and blueprints are so thick, because the rhetorical strategy is that, well, if this thing that we're not actually doing doesn't work, then this other thing that we're sort of kind of doing might potentially sort of. It's sort of like saying, like, we have the tools. Like, I have some tools in my house. Currently, (laughs) I have a car in the garage. If my car broke down, if it didn't start when I uh, got down there, I have some tools and maybe through some sort of MacGyver magic, they could fix my car. But here's the thing. I would then call triple A. Because I don't know how to make those tools do that thing. And and, and actually, if you want to, like, you know, stretch the analogy a little bit to make it more appropriate, it's like, imagine... Not that I had tools, but that I could go out and buy tools uh, and that those tools would be very expensive. And I would then also have to learn how to be a mechanic and use them. That is sort of where we are with a lot of the tools that currently exist. No, and it's so absolutely true. And that's why when I hear this line now, which is the sort of everyone can protect themselves. If people want to if people want more protection, they can protect themselves. We have the tools, right? It's kind of this. Um, it's this ultimate distillation of the personal responsibility narrative, and it's a sort of rhetorical flourish that's designed to make me angry. And part of it is just that it's one of those kind of things where it is that immediate answer to the doubt that someone might have, right? When you, you're experiencing sort of maybe you're a passive viewer who does not have a lot of skin in the game on COVID, and like maybe you're not sort of super hyper tuned into um, the news the way a death panel listener might be, right? Right now, depending on what your media diet is or whatever, you've got a very different picture of the pandemic. And that's really evident in a lot of the reporting that you're seeing about the mask mandate, like, debate, which is like, obviously, when you when they try and include the kind of both sides perspective, you have people that are saying, well, I don't I heard in the news like deaths aren't going up and nobody wears a mask anyways. So like it doesn't seem like it matters that there's a mask mandate. Right. And that seems like a version of the world that is just so fucking far from the version of the world that I think is obvious to many of the people who are listening to us talk right now. 
And if you're watching, um, you know, <laughs> Lena Wen and Ashish Jha on TV all day long, when they say we have the tools, you know, if you're if you're not someone who needs those tools right now and has to go through the process of actually and the burdens of accessing them, you might have no idea that those tools are not available. Right. But it's like enough to just repeat this maxim of, well, we have the tools, we have the tools. Yes. And then there isn't any sort of further pushing from that because there's this kind of like, I think, disincentive to sort of people don't want anyone to panic. Right. And this is very much like where that narrative sort of is always seeking to comfort people is like, no, there's no reason to panic. Like we have the tools. They exist. They're there. You know, and I think that there's no sort of better, you know, evidence of this, because once you've once you have made the argument that it's actually every individual's responsibility to protect themselves from the pandemic, then when your strategies as a government fail, then, you know, you have a plausible uh, kind of you have plausible deniability. You can always say that, like, well, people weren't cautious enough or, or you know, something or other or at the very I mean, and that's presuming that you even get called to account, which is not necessarily a given. Um, but when you actually look at what the administration has proposed to do, you know, they have to have some rationale they tell themselves about how they are using the authority they have to, uh, you know, prevent life from being uh, nasty, brutish and short. And when you actually look at what they're doing, it is really, really far from any of the nice words that were you know, laid down in the document and told to the press. And I feel like the, the best example of that, and maybe we can get into this now, is the administration's uh, one-stop test-to-treat uh, policy. So back in March, the uh, administration had this plan, and this is sort of like, this is our new preparedness plan for COVID-19. And the whole plan was that we're going to have these one-stop test-to-treat locations um, at you know pharmacy-based clinics, at community health centers, in which you could go in, uh, get tested for COVID-19, um, get prescribed uh, an anti an oral antiviral and then, you know, fill the prescription uh, right there. That was, I think, in Biden's State of the Union. Uh, right. He mentioned that uh, this is sort of a big headline thing. The, you know, the administration was sort of like taking a victory lap on. Well, and as we talked about in our uh, episode that we did looking, we did a deep dive on this exact document with Justin Feldman and Abby Cardis mm-hmm. and as we talked about, this was actually when they announced their big new blueprint for like what the next phase of the pandemic was going to be. This was one of the only things that was a novel introduction, right. actually. And it got a lot of praise, too. It got it a lot like of one idea. It was like if you were critical of the Biden administration and you were looking through that plan, right, that was for many people who were broadly critical of that plan. That was the sort of one thing that they were like, yeah, but this actually would be a good idea if it works. Right. I mean, if right. That yeah. And, and there if. was some evidence that, yeah, that, you know, starting at oral antivirals early, you know, as, you know, close to the onset like that. All of that is like a good thing that you might want to do. Of course, right. all of this presumes, first of all, that there is a thing that people know how to do and are able to do uh, and have you know some resources to do, which is like test themselves uh, when they get sick. That is something that is, you know, is pretty clear is not happening uh, for a lot of people. Testing is, is I think, pretty sporadic and, you know, is sort of lower than than points in, in the last year uh, currently. But even presuming that it was good, the way that the program uh, has been rolled out 
is deeply flawed. And like one indicator, this is a great uh, article where a journalist went to, you know, a bunch of different clinics uh, that were supposed to have this service in a metropolitan, you know, major metropolitan area. And even finding uh, one clinic where it was available or being able to determine that took about um, three uh, hours, which, you know, from the perspective of like a uh, public health intervention, you know, that is going to be prohibitive uh, for people actually using the service. Oh, and then easily, yeah. when you look Especially for the, imagine yeah. someone starting to not feel well and then being sent on a three hour, you know, like that first day of feeling symptoms and being like, oh, I might, might not be sick. You know, the first thing you want to do is a three Just hour, drive around for three hours, you know, pointless, yeah. pointless, futile task. Right. And it's, it, you know, <laughs> and when you look deeper into like what is going on with this uh, program, uh, for example, in the state, the entire state of Vermont, there is not a single test to treat location. What? Okay? And it's not the only state where that's the case. Entire state of Vermont, no test to treat location. And I actually went on the websites of the major um, state, uh, you know, state and ter- territorial health officials um, and the, uh, you know, a bunch of other sort of like public health uh, and, and you know, state official like websites where they tend to provide guidance for state officials when like a new federal rule comes out. Um, you can't find anything uh, about test to treat on those websites. And apparently HHS has not responded uh, to requests uh, for journalists to observe their weekly virtual meetings with state health officials. So on the one hand, there's this like question about exactly how, you know, is the federal government trying to coordinate with states to make this happen? But then when you look at what, who actually does have these programs in place, it's, largely private pharmacies, chain pharmacies, yeah. um, CVS, like big chains it, like CVS. Yeah, yeah exactly. CVS. When Sounds I looked in like Milwaukee, special. Yeah. But like, that's not the only challenge. So like once you get onto the CVS website, actually like figuring out whether or not there are times and whether or not they can actually provide you the service they promise is really difficult. And there's a broader sort of industrial, uh, politics here, which is that, um, you know, over, I think, 95 percent of Americans live within something like five miles of community pharmacies. But there are all kinds of restrictions on what pharmacies can actually uh, do in terms of prescribing, uh, actually like writing the prescription. Uh, the AMA has pushed back on uh, legislation mm. uh, to sort of open up prescribing powers to uh, pharmacists for for purposes like test to treat. Of course, I um, would. And so, yeah. so essentially, like in the absence of like a national health service that can coordinate this sort of thing, yeah. you have industrial politics going on where pharmacists and doctors are kind of duking it out uh, about who actually has prescribing authority. Meanwhile, um, you have all of these pharmacies where there's potential capacity that could exist that actually can't do the prescribing. Um, that people need. So this is sort of like a failure of this kind of transactional politics or this idea that somehow through these partnerships that the federal government makes, we can we can take this service, which doesn't currently exist. Right. And just leverage the private sector, quote unquote, uh, to make it happen in the absence of any other sort of major reforms. Um, it's not really addressing any of the, you know, the major barriers. And and even when you look at you know, the CVS, you know, while it doesn't charge uh, symptomatic uninsured people for on-site COVID tests, the minute clinics, which are where a lot of this uh, you know, test to treat action is going to take place, 
they charge upwards of $100 for in-person or yeah. telehealth appointments mm-hmm. to examine patients and prescribe an antiviral if needed. So, like, even under the best case scenario where the federal government was able to roll this out in a lot more pharmacies where it currently is, where there, there are large swaths of the country where it, it would t- you would have to drive like 100 miles to get to a test to treat site. <laughs> I mean, even if they were able to solve that, you would still have this absolutely prohibitive cost uh, for people being able to uh, get the drug. Right. I want to circle back to like one of the administrative burdens you mentioned, which is like the prescription itself, right? Actually getting that prescription because that is the part of the tools that no one ever fucking mentions. And that is always like one of the most difficult parts, right? Because that involves testing, which is inaccessible. That involves getting access to probably a doctor, an NP, because you know that the American Medical Association is very protective over the prescription writing rights of physicians because they see that as a means of maintaining control over the like economic status of the profession. And this has been something that the American Medical Association has lobbied the U.S. government about for decades. So this is a known issue, right? When you try and give some authority to other practitioners like nurses and and NPs or pharmacists, the AMA is going to fight you. So to have not included any plan for dealing with any of this stuff up front, right? And to have just sort of run into it like, oh yeah, we're going to use these pharmacies. It's going to be great. People are going to be able to go. You know, obviously the immense spatial inequity of the United States, meaning that there is like basically no access to chain pharmacies in certain areas and certain neighborhoods is like a whole other known issue that they should have been aware of. But this point of being able to actually access the prescription itself or be able to empower enough people to write that prescription, right, and make those judgments, that was a known issue. You can't pretend that that was not a problem that they knew they would run into. Yeah, it it, it actually sort of, it's funny, like one wonders what like fantasy, the fantasy world that they uh, are living in making these policies. And I feel like it's the fantasy world where all of the you know, healthcare cost containment logic, administration, staffers, and others sort of like elite academics propounded in the early 2000s. It's almost as if they're living in the world now where they believe all of that worked out and didn't have any adverse consequences. And now like there's, you know, we live in that world and actually that's good. Uh, or actually like that actually, that allows people to, you know, uh, to obtain mm-hmm. the correct amount uh, of of healthcare, which it absolutely doesn't. It means that people underutilize, mm-hmm. and, and so you know, especially when the goal is to prevent people from being hospitalized. The <laughs> fact that this remains the approach, and and also that that in their you know in the, in the view of science and the team that put this together, they believe that this was like the best available uh, option that made the most <laughs> sense. It's illustrative of the fact that. The people who like rise through the ranks are, you know, in, in the Democratic Party and within uh, this particular space within the Democratic Party, that sort of health policy space, they are the least visionary, least thoughtful, least like actually able to apprehend what the challenge of living in an in a moment in time where pandemics like this will become a part of our lives. Like these people have no claim 
on on the authority to plan in that <laughs> environment. And and they should be pilloried for this. I mean, th- th- they, this should be mm-hmm. an embarrassment for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, absolutely. And, and I think, unfortunately, like in the current like media context where it's it's like somehow impolite uh, to <laughs> challenge these people just because they're not like telling, you know, just because they're not the Trump uh, appointees who are telling people to, like go drink bleach or whatever, um, <laughs> you know, that it's somehow impolite to to, you know, criticize the actual outcomes of a policy that they put together that isn't working, that that's somehow rude or uh, uncivil is is so ridiculous. And it is like a de- it's a death rattle of any sort of like democratic culture uh, in the United States. I'm sensing some uh, subtextual call out of uh, Lena Wen here, but um, I, di- I digress. Uh, if you know, you know. Anyway, uh, the I mean, all of this, I think, really has shades of the initial vaccine rollout, mm-hmm. too, which makes sense. I mean, Zion's planned both. Right. Um, Very true. And I mean, I don't know. I we 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 can you know tear this apart all day it's unfortunate this is going so poorly but then on the other hand uh you know much like with the initial vaccine rollout the moment that i hear oh you know cvs is going to play a big part on this walgreens is going to play, play a big part on this i'm like okay just like you know start the countdown until like total system failure here we saw how poorly the vaccine rollout went we saw how much the fact that so many of the partners that are that so many of the partners the Biden administration has relied on for administering public health duties being private healthcare companies. I don't know. Perhaps there's a problem there. The thing is, like, I think so often, even when like these failures are pointed to, um, and I want to be very clear when I make this point, I think uh, I'm concerned. I think that I've seen some criticism of things like test to treat and uh, and the even though we have the tools conversation that basically borders on, well, uh, the problem is like, sure, we have the tools, but they're not distributed equitably. And I just want to pause to take to call bullshit on that, too, because mm. I think the problem is not like, yeah, yes, obviously it's a problem if we have new therapeutics and people can't fucking get them. That is a huge problem. However, Solving that problem does not solve the root cause of this whole thing, which is to say your main game plan. When you say we have the tools, your main game plan should absolutely not be the thing that is the third order solution, right? Your main game plan when you say we have the tools should not be we can just up the supply of Avusheld and Paxlovid Because then, okay, once we get enough out there, equity, job well done. Mm-hmm. Your main fucking, when people say like, we have the tools, if they are not talking about tools like at a bare minimum masking, but also things that we also know that work like paid sick leave, paying people to stay home, a whole host of other things that we've been advocating for this whole pandemic, fucking Medicare for all, right? Like if you are saying we have the tools and you're not referring to those things, you are unserious. You're, you are participating in a fantasy. Yeah. I mean, and more basically, I guess the question I would ask is like, if we have the tools, you know, where are they? And, um, why aren't they working? Right? Like what, why are you so invest? I guess my question is like, why are you so invested in the idea that either we have to rely on the fact that we have all these tools that you know, supposedly exist in the environment, but they're just mysteriously not working for reasons that nobody wants to talk about. Or <laughs> right. like, why are you so invested in the idea that the only tools that we have are the ones that exist? It's a profoundly regressive 
like ideology. And I think to me, I, there's an answer to this question of why people are invested in that is because the game of advancing as a uh, governing elite, right? Whether in the bureaucracy or in elected branches or wherever, the game of doing that is premised on this form of professional credibility, which relies on not saying anything that seems too hard or too <laughs> aggressive because, you know, best to propose something that ideally would never have to go through Congress uh, or, you know, you could s- somehow claim kind of like a modest victory on just because you had like a guideline. Um, that's the way that like professional credibility is made uh, <laughs> in a world where there isn't political energy for Uh, anything larger. And, you know, so this isn't even, I think what I'm saying is this isn't even a criticism of any one uh, individual or set of individuals. This is a, an, an empirical, I I think, acknowledgement of what it takes to succeed in the, uh, you know, hierarchy of credit that those individuals exist in. Yeah. um, Which is perverse. And I think means in the end, uh, in the absence of any sort of change in that political equilibrium, that, uh, we have to admit that we cannot, absolutely cannot combat pandemics. We can't, right. Uh, right. as long as as that is the uh, sort of professional ideology uh, of the people who are supposed to be the top peak planners uh, for <laughs> pandemics in the country. Right, and I mean, I think they're making a big gamble too, which is that they are hoping that this lack of response will not lead to total system collapse in, I don't know, anywhere from five to 10 years with the amount of like, just sort of uh, massive amounts of like death and trauma, disability that are coming from just two years of this pandemic. The longer that we like refuse to acknowledge the fact that the way to deal with a pandemic is to keep infections down, which is like a very simple ideology. Well, and when we in fact to do the opposite and actively work to remove the few things that we were doing. Right. Right. It's, it's actually, it's, it's a really huge risk that they're taking on, on behalf of the entire body politic, right? Without our consent, they just expect that we can keep doing this and treading water forever and we're not going to get super fucking mad at them and everything's going to be fine it's horrific to even consider that that's essentially the logic that is underlying the pandemic right now that it's fine people will never get mad enough at us to riot and we'll be fine you know yeah and i think this brings us to the kind of last thing that we wanted to talk about which is i think one of these things that is i think a new sort of rhetorical innovation basically that i wouldn't be surprised if it you know got started to get a little bit more traction in the coming weeks as i think when you know some of the things that we're talking about right like the whether it's like failure of test to treat or needing justifications for the end of mass mandates stuff like Mm -hmm. that all these things when you know you when you say reality is good, actually, things are fine, more or less. Um, or if things are not fine, then at least we have the tools to kind of manage reality being, you know, modestly not fine right. or something. Uh, when that supposition fails, um, I think you have to end up, you end up leaning back on, again, what I've 
mentioned several times, I think, in this episode is magical thinking, but you you lean back on some justification. Like you need some justification, I think, for for this. And we, we can call that like um I think from the conversation we were just having, it's like, you know, in some parts, uh the Biden administration, for example, has the justification of their political ideology and what they understand of like what the limits of the, you know, political economy can be and their actions. But so this this final thing that we wanted to talk about is a rhetorical innovation that comes out of everybody's favorite, The Atlantic, um, a new Benjamin Mazur piece, uh, Benjamin Mazur being the the person who brought us such hits as stop wasting coronavirus tests, people. Um, this is fun. <laughs> Uh, this new one, this, uh, this, his new, uh, new, new hit single, single, new hit yeah, single. <laughs> exactly. Is it's just scaring people and it's not saving lives. And oh, the headline, and I'm going to read some of this, but before I do, I want to briefly summarize the argument, which is essentially, uh, twofold. One, uh, the immunocompromised or the medically vulnerable, however you want to call them, uh, are not in fact, as vulnerable to COVID-19 as all of the hysterical, you know, people who are complaining about uh, deaths and equity and everything might have you believe. And the second point is to claim otherwise, to claim that the medically vulnerable, the immunocompromised are still at high risk, are facing substantial risk and threat to their lives, increasing risk now from, you know, mass mandates being stripped off of like buses and planes and things like that, uh, that to claim otherwise, right. That to claim that, um, medically vulnerable people are in fact vulnerable is anti-vax. So let's get into this because this is wild and I could see it tricking some people and it's already gotten around a lot. So before this becomes a bigger thing, before this gets used as sort of a, you know, like warm rhetorical blanket for someone like David Leonhardt or whoever. Let's uh, let's digest this a little bit. Yeah, shall we? let's do it. Okay. So here's uh, here's the piece. I'm just going to read some parts of it. Uh, it begins quote as the United States nears its numbing millionth COVID death and shrugs its shoulders at a rise in cases. Some Americans are feeling left behind <laughs> nears its Immunocompromised people have suffered disproportionately throughout the pandemic, and even those who have been fully vaccinated wonder if they're really safe. News stories highlight their struggles to adapt to a society that, quote, doesn't seem to care whether they survive. This dramatic coverage underscores the continuing risks of the pandemic, especially for those who are most vulnerable. Immunocompromised people who get vaccinated aren't quite as safe as the general vaccinated population. Uh, In parentheses, the degree of added risk depends on the underlying condition. End parentheses. But well-intentioned stories on this issue sometimes overstate the case, claiming that COVID shots for the immunocompromised are, quote, ineffective or, quote, cannot work on everyone. That is incorrect, and it hinders uptake of vaccines. There you go. The shots do provide these patients with very meaningful protection as a rule, Jennifer Nuzzo, the director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health, told me. Of course, you gotta quote Nuzzo. (laughs) Of course, it's Nuzzo. (laughs) To suggest otherwise... Article without her. To suggest otherwise, quote, is just a complete distortion. It's just scaring people, and it's not saving lives. Unquote. 
I mean, this is one of those classic instances where you you have this straw man stood up that creates this kind of version of what people who are advocating for pandemic protections are saying that is so far from what they're actually saying that it becomes a little ridiculous to say that when people are pointing out the fact that there are people on certain immunosuppressive medications who are not developing good immune responses, that that is in and of itself like uh, equal to saying that they are you know ineffective or cannot work on everyone is kind of amazing because it's like, it's one of those things that I think we saw early on where people were saying, well, if you question the efficacy, right, if you say, well, hold on, we don't know if it uh, stops transmission or not, we were only studying hospitalization, that that was equivocated to questioning the validity and efficacy of the vaccine itself. And so you have this kind of repetition, again, where you have the best excuse, right, for holding on a second and not maybe rushing ahead with unmasking and disregarding the significance of cases and decoupling cases from hospitalizations or whatever the fuck. The best sort of argument for that right now is that, you know, there's this huge segment of the population that's never going to be protected by the vaccine, right? And so you have to keep cases lower is to simply say, oh, no, like, you can't draw attention to those people because if you do that, that's going to discourage them from getting vaccinated and it's going to make them think that they're hysterically more vulnerable than they actually are as if people can't, like, realize for themselves, like, uh, any sort of actual vulnerability and they they can only understand it through the sort of collective imagination of like what other people think of them. Well, and, and it's it's also one of these things where you, you sort of have to wonder, like, what is the function of this other than to at a very important political time discredit anyone yeah, who has been pushing exactly. a little bit harder, not even that much harder, but a little bit harder mm-hmm. on the administration to uh, like actually do the things that are frankly in the fucking organic statute that created the CDC. Uh, like that's, that is all that is being asked, but it is but like, the thing is it is essential right now uh, that uh, people who are pushing for those things uh, be discredited. That is an, a very important oh, political objective. No, absolutely. And I, I appreciate it. I appreciate that you put it that way, Phil, because it's like, uh, I think that's so clear, right? And one of the things that you're also seeing here, too, is that when people who are immunocompromised are sharing their stories, right, and they're trying to, like, advocate for this, or even when, like, I make a point, like, about why we need, uh, you know, higher levels of vaccination amongst the general population, that's usually the context of when people are talking about, you know, the inefficacy, quote unquote, or cannot work on everyone, quote unquote, frames of the vaccine, right? And it's taking that argument that immunocompromised people are making about needing a collective response to the pandemic, and it's trying to force it back into the individualized response to the pandemic frame, and in the process also sort of discrediting those voices as being um, a little, you know, paranoid or prone to exaggeration, perhaps. I mean, Mazur's joining a long list of physicians basically throughout history who are, you know, looking essentially to the Mm -hmm. concerns of medically vulnerable people like yourself be and saying, you're just hysterical, don't worry, you're fine. Um, The 
the end, I'll, I'm going to keep reading some more of this piece. The thing is that like so much of even um, he, he then, you know, cites all of these uh, studies, for example, that are about the that are about vaccine efficacy in people who are immunocompromised for a variety of different reasons. Repeat that. Like the thing is, the interesting thing about this piece is that it does essentially repeat like, yes, in fact, for people who are immunocompromised or medically vulnerable for, again, a variety of different reasons and to a variety of different degrees. Yes, in fact, they are more at risk for COVID, right? He, nothing that he puts in here disproves that. And yet the argument essentially becomes that the risk is overstated, that the the risk that vulnerable people feel and the risk that uh, is being communicated in press, right, in accounts uh, that do even if in many of them, they don't seem to actually necessarily uh, talk to immunocompromised people, but they speak about immunocompromised people, mm. right? Like Mazur is saying essentially that these press accounts overstate the the risk uh, to people and that that is therefore dangerous. So he, he then states this uh, information saying essentially like that there are risks, there are additional risks for immunocompromised people, and yet, you know, they're not quite as bad or whatever, like you're being hysterical if you think they're that bad. Um, and then says, quote, this reassurance means all the more when so many members of the chronic disease community feel left for dead by the casual reversals of pandemic funding and restrictions. But in place of measured consolation from the experts, the experts like Nuzzo, they find <laughs> offhand comments saying that vaccines don't work for them, as one public health school dean tweeted earlier this month. This despairing rhetoric can't be helping to encourage vaccination, which is, I think I want to point out horse shit because if you know any medically vulnerable people as we do we know many they were the first fucking people to line up for the vaccine they were the first people to get booster shots before the booster was actually authorized right and many I mean, of them are constantly asking people in their lives to get vaccinated because they know that if they're more vulnerable they need other people vaccinated in order to keep them safe right like everyone right. who's concerned about their vulnerability right now is concerned because they understand how bad Biden's vaccine response has been, right? And how bad the levels of vaccine uptake actually are, right? And they're worried about the low levels of vaccination in other people, motherfucking asshole. <laughs> he uh, he then essentially goes on to say that basically not only are the immuno are the concerns of the immunocompromised overblown, they are overstated in terms of the amount of immunocompromised people that there are. Uh, quote when COVID reporting casually lumps together all immunocompromised patients, it papers over these differences. Readers are left to think that a fibromyalgia patient and a kidney recipient face similar risks. For chronically ill people, political power derives in part from group solidarity. The larger the contingent, the louder the voice. This is literally talking about the charity model, which is a horrible way of organizing patient coalitions, but whatever, that's a conversation for a total other day. The larger the contingent, the louder the voice. Yet in pursuit of visibility and justice, the oh, quote, vaccinated but vulnerable. Yes. Unquote, oh, motherfucker. And category. I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to draw the distinctions. Like, I will say who is the truly vulnerable. I, in the pages of oh, the Atlantic, I will say. Judge I decide who is just. sickos from the fakers. Uh, yet in pursuit of visibility and justice, the quote, <laughs> vaccinated but vulnerable category may be expanded well beyond what the science suggests to include not only organ transplant patients, but also people with diabetes, asthma, obesity, or high blood pressure. 
According to this paradoxical arithmetic, half of the country can end up in the high risk category by some definition. I mean, come on. Like the, the pro- Could it be because our healthcare system fucking sucks and sucks the life out of you at the same time? Could, could it be because of the very next thing that he says, which is the one thing that I would say in this piece that is true? Quote, in truth, we all remain vulnerable to COVID. Again, that's actually true. Uh, Inoculation isn't 100% effective in any demographic. The threat of long COVID also lingers. Why is he using the word inoculation? Whatever. That is like very outdated terminology for a specific reason relating to anti-vax sentiments specifically. But the peril is far more concentrated than generic references to chronic conditions or comorbidities would suggest. Age continues to be far and away the most powerful risk factor for becoming seriously ill from the coronavirus. That's pulled from the future. Putman, a, re- a rheumatologist that his uh, that he references earlier in the piece, uses an example of a 64-year-old doctor counseling a 24-year-old autoimmune patient to take precautions. The patient should probably be admonishing the doctor instead, he told me. <sighs> When the vaccine campaign began with shots for the oldest Americans in nursing homes and elsewhere, news coverage emphasized seniors' feelings of joy and relief. But the immunocompromised have been described in very different terms, even as vaccines are saving their lives too. Stories focus on their uncertainty and fear and may end up adding to the same, is the end. Wow. That's some real throwback paternalistic bullshit right there. I think ultimately, actually, what uh, this kind of article and the argument this, that Mazur's making here speaks to is that there are a lot of people who take pause when they hear about the stories of people who are immunocompromised right now, and that that represents probably a, a significant messaging flaw in the current dominant narrative of the pandemic i right. mean you can't it's something say everything is fine and then see all these things that are like back to normal means uh very different thing for right. disabled and immunocompromised people right. yeah. and, and one of the points that a lot of uh medically vulnerable people have been making is that your medically vulnerable status is a lot more complex than mere pathology or blood work and that it also, you know, involves all of these other social and structural determinants of health. Like there are people, yes, who ha- might have a fibromyalgia diagnosis who that may be available on their ele- electronic medical record. Right. Um, and maybe that's sort of captured at the level where the data is being calculated when we're trying to determine the percentage of population that is medically vulnerable. Right. That person might count as medically vulnerable because of fibromyalgia in one system, but that doesn't mean that that person isn't immunocompromised and that's registered in a different electronic medical system. So the way that like healthcare is decentralized and fractured means that a lot of people not only don't know that they're medically vulnerable when they are, but that a lot of people's records are just broken into multiple healthcare systems and it's never reflected in the full counts of who is actually vulnerable. And so the numbers that people have been pulling out of the hat to cite this population size, you could pull a lot of different numbers depending on what kind of population size you want to portray this as. The data is highly up for debate as to the size of this population. And if you're going by the sort of precautionary principle, then the idea would be to take the largest population 
possible population that could be in this position and sort of work towards those needs, right? And what he's saying is that, well, what, well, that population that's essential that needs that targeted intervention is actually so much smaller than people are portraying it as. And what this is doing is creating this kind of false idea in people's minds who are kind of sick. They're definitely still sick people, but they're not in the category that he sees as the only valid and worthy category well, of additional I mean. protection. He's trying to say, don't worry about it. Exactly. I think let's let let's step back though and and kind of simplify. I think the way to get to that is to point to where exactly that I think this came from. Mm. So I don't know for sure, but there was a interaction actually between Mazer and Death Panel fave David Leonhart on <laughs> Twitter um, in late March that I remember noting because I was like so frustrated in the the back and forth that was happening here and basically what had happened was in a uh, march 28th 2022 newsletter uh of leon hart's called reducing covid's toll at around the time period when he was basically kind of like you know being attacked for not giving a shit about immunocompromised and medically vulnerable people right he was trying to work those into his columns and he wrote this this thing kind of an extension of his five point plan uh, mm. for like how to, you know, deal with the pandemic. And he referred to the immunocompromised um, specifically saying, quote, for a small percentage of Americans, vaccination is impossible or ineffective, unquote. Now, Mazer did a tweet responding to this specifically and calling and like with a screenshot of this particular thing, calling out saying, quote, we need to stop saying the vaccine is ineffective in, in immunocompromised people. This borders on misinformation. Oh, I remember so this. essentially. So, but this is my point. So the rhetoric, actually the prop, the, the fucked up thing about this whole He's mad at thing, David Leonhardt. He's not even, well, it's not even just he's mad at David Leonhardt. Mazer is not responding actually to even what, immunocompromised or medically vulnerable people or disabled people are saying themselves about their vulnerability to COVID. He is responding to the already existing misinterpretation or straw man from other people, frankly, that then takes those complaints that the medically vulnerable are saying that are categorically true, that reflects their material reality that they are fucking trying to demand change over. Right. And he's taking that and looking at like this again, uh, this this uh, it's like a game of telephone has carried this to Benjamin Mazer and it has turned into oh those people are anti-vax. Oh my god! This line, this talking point is anti-vax. Again, I don't know if that is the direct causal chain. Uh, this particular interaction with with Leonhart, who then you know approvingly like quote tweeted Mazer's tweet and said this is like a really good correction or whatever. Like this is the kind of negative feedback that I like basically. Uh, was the was the vibe of the tweet, but the um, but I, I, my point is, I think the point stands. It's it's interesting because this doesn't even come. What Mazer is trying to argue, in addition to being ridiculous on the merits of what of like all of the things that we've just said already, what Mazer is trying to argue is not even reflective of like an actual argument that is taking place, and right. it's certainly, as I mentioned before, not reflective of quote-unquote vaccine hesitancy among immunocompromised people because that is like the least fucking vaccine hesitant group i've ever met 
Also, like, it's absurd. I mean, it's absurd to be basically in one article, both minimizing the scope of a population in the reader's mind and then blaming them for a large portion of people (laughs) remaining vaccine hesitant. And like that makes a lot more sense, actually, in this context of the back and forth that you pulled up, which I absolutely remember people sending me. Mazur's tweet um, in March, like I just went through my DMs and was like, yeah, I remember exactly what this was. And I was like, where the what the fuck is this guy talking about? Yeah, like literally, what the fuck is this guy even talking about? I have no idea. Like, what is David Leonhardt even talking about here? Right. And it was sort of one of those things that I just like, you know, when you're when you're reading this, you're like, wow, look at this. They're taking this rhetoric and they are like absolutely using it to try and minimize any of these critiques. And to me, that's kind of also a good sign, right? I mean, I think it shows that this shit works in some Because they have to exaggerate the claim in order to even try attempt to rebut it. Exactly, right? Because like, it. you know, it's 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 you really have to go um and find a straw man to turn into a second straw man in order to sort of construct your guy that you're going to call out in this month's like Benjamin Mazur's Atlantic column because it is a monthly thing for him and has been for months well, now. Classic right? op-ed shit complaining about someone who definitely exists. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My, exactly. My friend who doesn't <laughs> or like advocating also for somebody who doesn't my friend who doesn't yeah. know what Italian sandwiches are. Exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I want to be really clear about the stakes here, right? Because what we're talking about when we're talking about like mask mandates is not like mask mandates. It's like the access of medically vulnerable people and the people in their lives to society, right? And we're debating when we're debating whether or not we need non-pharmaceutical interventions, we're debating whether or not there's any value in protecting people from getting sick. And ultimately, what people like Lena Wen or um, Benjamin Mazur or David Leonhardt are trying to convince you of is that that is not the conversation that's happening and that it's really about all of these other things like vaccine hesitancy and the complex dynamics of advocating for immunocompromised people and personal choice and all of this bullshit. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we are talking about a conversation about whether or not it's worth it to keep each other safe and protect each other from sickness. And the answer to that question should always be yes, right? Yeah. I mean, that should be that that much should be obvious, right? And so you have to create all of these distracting rhetorical constructions in order to draw the attention away from like what the true question at the end of the day actually is. Also, I mean, if you want to talk about vaccine hesitancy, I mean, only 30% of people have gotten a booster. Like I it's appalling. That's appalling. It's that sucks. Like that can't just be hesitancy. Also, that can't just be. Well, what I'm getting at is like that can't just be hesitancy. And I think that things like pick who you want to blame. Exactly. I think it's a whole coalition of them. But like um, the Biden administration wanting to message that basically everything's fine. Mm -hmm. People like David Leonhardt trying to message, even though they write like, you know, go get boosted or whatever, like trying to essentially message that like, if you're, if you're quote unquote young and healthy or, or whatever, that, um, you're, you know, mostly totally fine. I think the whole construction of like, oh, well, COVID is actually just this like, uh, you know, cuddly little thing that you maybe get. And then it's just like the sniffles or something like that. And not this thing that has killed a million people in the U.S. alone, 
right? That whole construction, I think, has done substantially more slowing, for instance, booster uptake than any of this fucking nonsense that Mazer wants to point to. You want to point to like the people who are the most fucking worried about dying, who will do anything to fucking protect themselves, who are worried in existential way about what the rest of their fucking lives are going to be in a way that you probably can't fucking imagine. Go fuck yourself. Hell yeah. I mean, I have nothing to add to that statement. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it does. I was thinking I after our reading group on Sunday where we talked about this a lot, I was thinking I wanted to share a quote that we all picked out together um, from our first reading from Artie Lang's The Obvious And I think it's worth keeping in mind when you're trying to sort out why what seems like really obvious to you is not at all obvious to someone else. Um, Quote, there are those who know they don't know, those who don't know they don't know, and legions of those who find denser and denser realms of darkness in which to veil their own ignorance from themselves. <laughs> that's such a better version of the Rumsfeld. <laughs> no, no, it's, totally. That's, oh my that's god, that's way better. That's great. So, uh, if only Rumsfeld were that much a poet, right? Oh, we would have had a very different Iraq invasion war. of Iraq. <laughs> right, yeah. A more poetic invasion of slightly, Iraq. Yeah. Slightly more psychedelic uh, <laughs> tragedy. War, more psychedelic war crimes than, than previously done. And um, I think that's a good place to leave it for today. And if you'd like to join us, Reading Group is ongoing through the fall on Sundays in the Death Panel server at 4 p.m. Eastern. You do not have to be a patron to join, but if you would like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, which are just for patrons, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism and request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll catch you Monday in the patron feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.